0: This is Kick-Ass Politics. I'm Ben Mathis. Hey folks, I have a couple important announcements. Kick-Ass Politics is nominated for a 2016 Podcast Award for Best News and Politics Podcast. Voting has already begun, so do me a favor and while you're listening right now, go to podcastawards.com and click on Kick-Ass Politics under the News and Politics category. Voting ends June 12th, and you can vote once every day. So if you really want to help us out, then take 30 seconds each day between now and June 12th to go to podcastawards.com and vote for Kick-Ass Politics for Best News and Politics Podcast. Also, we're doing a new crowdfunding campaign at patreon.com backslash kickasspolitics. That's Patreon spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. With Patreon, you can pledge a certain amount each month, and in return for helping to sustain the show, you're going to get some great new benefits, like back episodes, exclusive content, show merchandise, shout outs on the podcast, video hangouts, invitations to live events, and more. Again, go to patreon.com backslash kickasspolitics. Thanks for your support, and thanks for continuing to listen. And now, enjoy the podcast. My guest today is a rising star in the Republican Party, And he's the governor of my home state, the great state of Texas. His is a remarkable story of overcoming adversity. Shortly after graduating from law school at the age of only 26, Greg Abbott was paralyzed in a freak accident that has left him in a wheelchair ever since. But as he says, our lives are not defined by our challenges, but by how we respond to them. He proved that by quickly rising to become one of the youngest justices ever to sit on the Texas Supreme Court, then the longest-serving attorney general in Texas history, and today he's governor of the state which boasts the second-largest GDP in America. As attorney general, he personally appeared before the U.S. Supreme Court to defend the Ten Commandments monument on the Texas Capitol grounds, and you know what? He won. In fact, Greg Abbott waged a record number of legal challenges against the federal government, including battles to defend the Second Amendment, the Tenth Amendment, and religious liberty. He says these experiences have opened his eyes to the fact that the federal government has strayed far from the Founding Fathers' vision of America, so far that he's now proposing a bold plan for Americans to take back power from Washington and restore adherence to the Constitution. He'll explain his plan today, plus he'll talk about his inspiring personal story, how being wheelchair-bound may have helped him win one of his first cases, his thoughts on the Americans with Disabilities Act, his 31 lawsuits against the Obama administration, including challenges to Obamacare and Barack Obama's executive order granting amnesty to illegals, and he'll also give his tips on where to go for the best barbecue and Tex-Mex next time you're in the Lone Star State. Coming up with Texas Governor Greg Abbott in just a moment. to Washington, it's
1: time for Kick-Ass Politics. And now here's your host, Ben Mathis.
0: My guest today is Texas Governor Greg Abbott. He has a new book called Broken But Unbowed, The Fight to Fix a Broken America. Governor Abbott, thanks for joining me over the phone. How's the weather down there in Texas? Is it hot yet?
1: Well, as we speak right now, it is getting hot because we are turning into uh, the, the June time period. But uh also as we speak uh parts of texas uh are underwater uh, we've had a lot of rain right. over the past few days and especially in the southern regions uh, down uh, river uh near the houston area and the coastal bend region uh there are a lot of people suffering from flooding and it's something that uh, we are keenly focused on as we speak
0: yeah I'll bet Well, the book is an interesting combination of your personal narrative, along with your thoughts on various abuses of the Constitution and how to fix them. But first, I want to focus on the biographical aspect of the book. You've been wheelchair bound for most of your adult life, but you haven't let that slow you down. That's for sure. Uh, For those who may not know the backstory, how did that happen?
1: I grew up uh, my entire life uh, very athletically. I was very involved in athletics in school, for example, and uh, maintained that uh, during my young adult life. And I I enjoyed uh, running uh, very frequently and playing golf, things like that. One day when I was 26 years old, I was out jogging. And when I was out jogging, a huge tree uh, uh, broke uh, and fell down and hit me on the back. And it fractured my vertebrae and my spinal cord, leaving me immediately paralyzed and forever unable to walk. So since the age of 26, I have needed to use a wheelchair to get around because I'm a paraplegic as a result of the accident.
0: Yeah, and I was kind of amazed because you were just starting out as a young lawyer at uh, the firm of Butler and Binion down in Houston. And you talk about how they actually kept you on the payroll, even though you hadn't really even started there. And the lawyers took time off to visit you at the hospital and help you find treatment. You don't very often hear of lawyers with a heart of gold like that, do you? That, that goes against the popular perception.
1: Well, that's one reason why I made sure uh, to include that in the book. And it, it shows, if you would, the, the, the human side uh, of lawyers who um, oftentimes uh, get a bad rap, but now this particular law firm, which was one of the largest law firms in Houston at the time, which is where I was working, uh, I'd actually just graduated from law school and I was studying to take the bar exam. and had not actually even begun to work for the law firm, and the accident happened. And at that time, medicine uh, was in. This was 1984, and it was uh, in as prehistoric stages compared to where medicine is today yeah. and i was in a hospital for a month and a half in a rehabilitation center for another month and a half and, uh... completely uh... in a body cast uh... for about oh, three months after that and so it was a long time before i was really able to go back to work well this group of uh... lawyers the law firm uh, they were so caring uh... they took time away from their jobs to be at the hospital to aid both me and my wife but also put me on the payroll so I could begin to draw a salary to pay my bills, uh, even though I wasn't working at the time, even though I was still in the hospital. And so it was one of those things that spurred me uh, to return to work even quicker, uh, to work even harder, uh, to do an even better job for the law firm that had done so much for me.
0: Yeah, and you certainly did. Uh, I think you kind of became one of their star attorneys there. But there's an interesting story uh, about early in your law career. You represented a lot of hospitals and nurses, and there's one in particular, uh, one of these so-called slip and fall cases, where it sounds like your condition may have actually helped you win the case. You want to tell that story?
1: Sure. One one thing uh, that's so interesting about being a lawyer in a wheelchair is that it puts me on the same level as jurors in the jury box. As opposed to some tall lawyer uh, lording over them and looking down upon the jurors, I'm eye to eye with the jurors. And it also creates a a different type of dynamic as it concerns a witness in the witness box. And in this particular case, there was someone who claimed that they had been injured. And uh, I was cross-examining them uh, as he was on the witness stand and as I was sitting in my wheelchair uh, next to... Uh, the jurors in the jury box. And uh, I was asking him tough questions about why it is that, uh, he claimed that uh, because he slipped and fell that he was unable to go out and work and get a job and why he was suing the hospital for lost wages. And uh, the, the more that I probed, the more that I was demonstrating the irony uh, that this man who was uh, walking around on a cane claiming that he couldn't get a job uh, was answering questions from a guy. Uh, who was in a wheelchair, uh, who was there working. And it got him so frustrated, uh, he came over and started beating my wheelchair with his cane, (laughs) completely forgetting that he had to limp.
0: (laughs) Oh, man. Well, you quickly went on to become a judge, and then you were appointed to the uh, state Supreme Court and eventually became the attorney general, I think the longest-serving attorney general in Texas. One of your uh, first big cases uh, that was the first time that you went to the Supreme Court, you were defending the Statue of the Ten Commandments on the Texas State Capitol grounds, right?
1: That's correct. Uh, It was uh, in 2005, and I was first elected to be Attorney General in Texas in 2002, and I served for a total of 12 years. And I argued at the United States Supreme Court, in defense of the Ten Commandments monument on the Texas Capitol grounds and uh, won that uh, at the United States Supreme Court. You know, a very interesting side note, as we speak today, uh, we know that there is a seat vacant on the United States Supreme Court, and that's a seat that was uh, vacant because of the death of Justice Scalia. The point, though, is that I I won the decision of the display of the Ten Commandments monument on the Texas Capitol grounds in a close five to four decision with Justice Scalia voting in favor. Uh, If his seat is replaced uh, by, let's say, Hillary Clinton uh, or by Barack Obama, then the Ten Commandments monument on the Texas Capitol grounds, as well as similar displays across America, suddenly become at risk.
0: Yeah, and one of the funny ironies of it is you talk about as you were there in the Supreme Court building, the building itself is full of Judeo-Christian symbolism.
1: Well, amazingly, the Ten Commandments themselves are displayed more than 50, that's five-zero times uh, in the United States Supreme Court itself. (laughs) On the doorway going into uh, the chamber uh, of the United States Supreme Court courtroom uh, is the Ten Commandments. Uh, As I was making the argument to the justices, right above them, uh, in a frieze that rims around uh, the ceiling of the court, uh, was Moses holding the Ten Commandments. And then uh, in gateways and other locations throughout the Supreme Court building uh, are replications of the Ten Commandments. The reason for it is because uh, the the Ten Commandments is one of the law givers uh, that led to the eventuality of the laws that we passed Uh, in the United States, uh, thou shalt not kill, uh, well, murder is a crime. And so uh, there are several lawgivers from uh, uh, times that long predate uh, the formation of the United States. And so it's it's, it's very rightful uh, for us to be able to recognize uh, the historic underpinnings of the laws that we have in our country today.
0: Yeah. And, you know, like I said, you were the longest serving attorney general. And uh, it's funny, I think, uh, you know, on an ironic level, you owe much of your career to President Obama because you <laughs> spent much of your time suing President Obama and the, and the federal government. Um, how many times in total have you sued the president?
1: Well, uh, during my career as Attorney General,
0: uh, I sued uh, the
1: Obama administration 31 times. I used to describe uh, my job uh, characterization as uh, waking up, going into the office, and suing the Obama administration, and going home. <laughs> uh, but remember this. I didn't file those lawsuits just uh, out of whim or uh, right. to attack the administration. Uh, those lawsuits were necessary. Uh, because of the repeated uh, violation of the United States Constitution by the Obama administration. Someone had uh, to hold the administration accountable. Someone had to hold them in check. And it was up to the states, and it was up to me uh, to make sure that we got that done. But I was proud to be joined in many of those lawsuits uh, by fellow attorneys general from across the country.
0: Yeah, and probably the biggest one of those was when you and a number of those other attorneys general challenged Obamacare at the Supreme Court. You say you thought you were winning up until the very end, and then Justice Roberts dropped a bombshell on you. In the same decision, he said Obamacare was not a tax, and then he said it was a tax. Can you explain how the heck that works? Sure,
1: (laughs) and it's it's bizarre. Uh, First, Uh, As I describe in the book and what you're talking about, uh, I was sitting in the courtroom at the time the decision was announced in the Obamacare case, uh, just as I had said in the courtroom during the oral arguments and had been involved in the court throughout the entire process. And uh, remember the way that the uh, media and the Obama administration and and, uh, the legal pundits from law schools uh, and commentators across the country had uh, chastised and ridiculed uh, the states for bringing this lawsuit saying that it never had a chance and it was nothing more than political posturing. Uh, But they were uh, fairly muted uh, after it turned out that we had won not only at the trial court, but at the Court of Appeals. And then after the oral argument, it was clear uh, that the Obamacare law was hanging by a very thin thread. Well, we got to decision day in uh, that late June of that particular year when the last day of Supreme Court decisions come out and Chief Justice Roberts started reading a synopsis of the opinion. And the first part of the opinion is uh, really the first issue that comes about in every single case and that is whether or not there is jurisdiction uh, for the parties to even be able to maintain standing in a particular case. And what Chief Justice Roberts read was that, in fact, we did have jurisdiction. But for us to have jurisdiction, uh, they had to rule uh, that Obamacare uh, was not was not a tax. Right. Uh, the reason is uh, there's this uh, anti-tax injunction law. Uh, if, if people were able to challenge a tax uh, and get an injunction stopping the tax from going into effect uh Americans could effectively cut off the flow of revenue to the United States of America. Right. And so if if, if something is a tax you cannot get an injunction to put a halt to it. So uh, as far as having standing to bring the lawsuit uh the court ruled that o- Obamacare was not a tax. And that really came as no surprise because if you recall uh Barack Obama himself said Obamacare was not a tax.
0: It was a Members penalty, of Congress right?
1: said Obamacare was not a tax. And there was a reason why they said that. And that is, if Obamacare had been a tax, you know, there's no way uh, that members of Congress could have voted in favor of it because they would have been voting themselves out of office had they been raising taxes uh, for uh, this uh, massive reconstruction of our health care system. So they they were abundantly and adamantly clear from the very beginning that Obamacare was not a tax. So on on that part of, of the case, uh, I think that was a no-brainer. And then Chief Justice Roberts went about reading the rest of the decision. And it turned out on, on issue after issue after issue uh, that the states had filed the legal challenge on we, won. Uh, on. we won on the primary claim, and that is that uh, the Obamacare law violated the Commerce Clause because it, for the first time in American history, Congress passed a law, forcing Americans to buy a product. And uh, that violates every fundamental premise of the United States. We can't have a government that forces people to go out and buy a product. So we went on that, and we we went on issue after issue. And then, uh, near the end, Chief Justice Roberts got to something that no one really paid very much attention to during the entirety of the entire case. And that is uh, whether or not uh, the law can be stricken down, I'm sorry, whether or not the law could be upheld uh, as a tax. Uh, And because President Obama and members of Congress and everyone had agreed that it was not a tax, it was a penalty uh, that you had to pay if you did not go out and buy Obamacare, uh, no one thought it was a a tax. And so I was astonished, and I think most everybody else was astonished. Uh, When Chief Justice Roberts uh, in his conclusion, said that Obamacare was in fact a tax and could be upheld as constitutional because it was a tax and Congress had the authority to impose a tax. And so, here in one decision, uh, with only a few minutes separating the two, uh, the the court ruled that Obamacare was not a tax and then held that Obamacare <laughs> was a tax. And so, if, if people are frustrated with our courts, Uh, That is a a crystal clear example why of how they will talk out of both sides of the mouth uh, in just a few minutes apart and just a few pages apart in a single decision.
0: We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back for more with Texas Governor Greg Abbott. If you're interested in my conversation with Governor Greg Abbott, then you'll enjoy his new book, Broken But Unbowed, The Fight to Fix a Broken America. And right now, you can download the audio version of his book for free with a special promotion just for our listeners from audible.com. Just go to audibletrial.com backslash kickasspolitics for a free 30-day trial and a free audiobook download, which can be Broken But Unbowed by my guest today, Governor Greg Abbott, or any of Audible's 180,000 titles. That's audibletrial.com backslash kickasspolitics. Or click on the sponsor link on our webpage to download the free audiobook of your choice. And again, please do me a favor, and while you're listening right now, go to podcastawards.com to vote for Kick-Ass Politics for Best News and Politics Podcast. You can vote once every day between now and June 12th, so go to podcastawards.com. Thanks again, and now back to more with Texas Governor Greg Abbott. Traditionally, we've relied on the Supreme Court to be kind of the last line of defense for the Constitution, and it sounds to me like you've kind of given up on, on them as the great defender of the Constitution at this point.
1: Well, as I outlined in great detail, uh, but easy to read, in my book, Broken But Unbowed, I made clear that it was the Supreme Court that was in the vanguard of destroying our constitutional structure to begin with. And most of the damage uh, of getting us off track occurred in the 1930s during the time uh, when FDR was president, and he threatened to pack the court. What happened is, in the early years, when uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt was president, the Supreme Court ruled against uh, his plans to reconstruct government, and at that time, uh, FDR threatened that he was going to continue adding justices to the United States Supreme Court uh, until he started getting rulings the way he liked. Well, suddenly, overnight, quite literally, uh, the Supreme Court changed its decisions. They ruled one way on the Commerce Clause one year, and then... Uh, two years later ruled differently. They ruled one way on the spending clause one year and then two years later they ruled differently. Uh, Same thing with regard to the general welfare clause and other clauses in the Constitution that were fundamental to the way that government works. And so uh, in in the 1930s uh, the Constitution as we know it got rewritten by the United States Supreme Court. Well since that time uh, that same process has continued. So let me ask you this question. And for your listeners, uh, consider this how many votes does it take uh, to amend the United States Constitution? Well, at, at this point in time, and I ask this question a whole lot in speeches, and people are thinking, well, let me see, maybe two thirds or three fourths. Yeah, that's right. Uh, the would reality say. is it takes two thirds of the states, or, I'm sorry, two thirds of Congress uh, to propose an amendment, three fourths of the states uh, to ratify it. But let me get to the question again how many votes does it take to amend the Constitution? The answer is it takes just five votes of judges on the United States Supreme Court. The Constitution is amended every single year by unelected, unaccountable justices on the United States Supreme Court.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. That's true. And, you know, not to get too off topic here, but you, you do lay a lot of blame for government overreach squarely at the feet of Franklin Roosevelt during the 30s there is, if nothing else, one thing you have in common with him. Do you ever think about him and, and what it would have been like to have to be a, a public figure with a disability and have to keep up the act that you don't have a disability and hide that?
1: Yeah, I can't even imagine it. Uh, for me, uh, moving around in a wheelchair is second nature now. It's as common as uh, you going out and walking. And uh, I couldn't even imagine uh, trying to conceal it We we live in a different time. The 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 reality is, in the aftermath of the Americans with Disabilities Act, it is a lot easier and a lot more common for people to get around in wheelchairs. Uh, Second, uh, with regard to advancements in medicine, it's a whole lot easier for people to uh, live uh, a full life, uh, even though they may have a uh, an injury that left them uh, uh, to be a paraplegic. So it certainly uh, hasn't slowed you down. But there is no way uh, that I I could function uh, by trying to disguise my life as one not in a wheelchair.
0: Yeah, and since you brought the Disabilities Act, throughout much of your book, you talk about burdensome regulations that hinder small businesses and individuals. Now, there are some and perhaps many who think that the Americans with Disabilities Act is just such an example. I'd be very curious to know where you stand on that.
1: Well, I'm in favor of it. Uh, here's the reality of it, and, and that is, the, the way this is really supposed to work is uh, I'm a strong believer in the Tenth Amendment. And the Tenth Amendment, uh, if it were to be applied, and as, as you know, I write in the book that the Supreme Court actually uh, wrote the Tenth Amendment out of existence. But the way the Tenth Amendment is supposed to work is that uh, all powers, not delegated, uh, to the federal government uh, in the Constitution are reserved to the states. Uh, And and this is one of those issues that should have been reserved to the states and, in fact, was uh, advanced by the states. Uh, At the time the Americans with Disabilities Act was passed, Texas, for example, uh, already had protections uh, for those with disabilities and to ensure that uh, accommodations would be made. Mm -hmm. Uh, The ADA was a a more comprehensive uh, plan and obviously applied uh, across the United States. Uh, but it, it applies in several ways. There, there are public accommodations, uh, and then there are the obligations on uh, on private businesses. Yeah. Uh, but looking back, by and large, it, it, it seems as though uh, the the system is one that has been uh, fairly well assimilated, uh, and is it seems to be working fairly well across the country.
0: Yeah, and the 10th Amendment, as you said, was intended to limit federal government, not give it unlimited lists of powers. You have one easy solution to fixing the 10th Amendment. You want to add one word to the 10th Amendment. What word is that? Expressly.
1: That one word, expressly. Uh, because here's the deal. What, what, uh, f- first, let me give you the quick background and tell you what needs to be done. Uh, in 1985, as I point out in the book, the Supreme Court, in a decision, said the Tenth Amendment was too complicated for them to apply it, uh, and uh, going forward, uh, states would have to rely upon their federally elected representatives and senators uh, to represent state interests, which turns the Tenth Amendment on its head, where states are supposed to be uh, have independent authority uh, to be protected against federal overreach. Right. Uh, and so uh, all our, all I really want to do uh, is, is not change the Constitution, but to reaffirm what the Constitution really intended. And so uh, to emphasize uh, that we really mean it this time, and the Tenth Amendment really does have to be applied, is, is to say uh, all powers not, this is the new word, expressly uh, delegated uh, to the federal government and the Constitution. Uh, are reserved to the states or to the people Now, there's there's one other thing that i'm asking for for modification to the tenth amendment and that is to equally make clear that states uh... have jurisdiction and standing uh... to sue the federal government to enforce the tenth amendment because as i point out in the book uh... texas brought a challenge to the federal government in a state called texas versus the united states where we tried to recover more than a billion dollars uh... in Texas taxpayer money uh, Mm -hmm. that was spent for health care, education, and law enforcement purposes to deal uh, with the results of the broken uh, immigration system and and the uh, the federal government's failure uh, to do its duty under the immigration laws. And and, uh, we were tossed out of court uh, in part based on uh, the court tossing out our Tenth Amendment argument, which Mm -hmm. goes to show that the Tenth Amendment has no teeth. Uh, unless states are giving specific authority to sue the federal government for violations uh, of the Constitution.
0: Yeah, and what you've proposed to give it some teeth is uh, what some perceive as a fairly radical idea. You have proposed that under Article 5 of the Constitution, the states call a constitutional convention. What would that entail?
1: Uh, A couple things real quick uh, for uh, just definition type purposes uh, we are not calling for a constitutional convention okay a constitutional convention would be a convention where there would be a consideration of writing a new constitution or rewriting the Constitution okay and and, and that's so not what would
0: we call this then
1: uh, it's, it's called in is it's, it's listed this way under article 5 it's called a convention of states okay and this also addresses the issue of, of of the word that you raise that some people also consider it and that is this radical idea. Remember this uh, what we are calling for uh, is uh, not someone's idea today. Uh, this is something that is written into the Constitution itself. Uh, right. The geniuses who were the authors of the Constitution knew uh, there would come a time uh, when the federal government could not be counted on to protect uh, the, the rights of individuals uh, as well as uh, the intended power of the states. And hence uh, the, the federal officials, members of Congress themselves cannot be counted on to propose and pass constitutional amendments. So um, just for context, Article 1 of the Constitution creates the le- legislative branch of government. Article 2 creates the uh, executive branch of government. Article 3 creates the judicial branch of government. Article 4 deals with some uh, details about interactions of state and federal government. Article 5 proposes the way the Constitution can be amended. Uh, uh, The the authors of the Constitution knew that it would need to be amended. In fact, in the very first Congress, they amended the Constitution 12 times, which shows that they fully intended for the Constitution to be amended. Also, they fully intended for states to have the authority and role. In amending the Constitution, and that is exactly what Article Five says. And so, what we're saying is that uh, we need to take up uh, the idea uh, of the genius of the founders who wrote the Constitution. Uh, they intended for us to be able to rein in a broken federal government, and I think most Americans agree we have a broken federal government. And the the way to restore this country uh, is to restore the Constitution to the way that it was intended as opposed to the way that it's been rewritten uh, by all three branches of the federal government.
0: Yeah, I'm going to play devil's advocate here. What do you say to those who say, well, the Constitution is fine as it is. We don't need to change the Constitution. We just need all three branches of the government to start obeying the Constitution as it's written. Is that what you're talking about doing here, is just strengthening those laws as is?
1: Well, the, the, the problem is that all three branches of government have strayed from it uh, mm-hmm. and they are unable to uh, abide by the constitution. Yeah. And uh so we need to uh, restore the constitution the way it was intended. Let me give you one easy example that will put all this together. Please. And and that is it was intended by the founders and most people think uh that the way the constitution creates our government is an elect an elected representative uh who uh uh, votes on laws that govern your lives. And that, that's, that's the, the governing compact. It actually comes from uh, John Locke and it's part of the process where you have uh, uh, inalienable rights uh, that you relinquish a little bit of when you uh, decide to have someone govern your life, yes. such as a member of Congress. But here's the deal. Uh, under the Constitution, it's Congress and only Congress that has the authority to pass laws that govern your lives. And yet... Uh, more than 90% of the laws, rules, and regulations coming out of Washington that govern your lives are never even voted on uh, by the United States Congress. That's right. Uh, instead, they come from unelected, unaccountable bureaucrats. And so, the, the the whole system, the way that it works right now, is so foreign to the way the Constitution is designed. Uh, it's going it's going to take uh, a law uh, that will uh, force uh, the federal government to uh, return to operating the way the Constitution was designed. And so my proposal there would be that uh, no, no act of an administrative agency like the EPA, like the IRS, uh, or the alphabet soup of federal government agencies has any effect uh, on your life unless and until it is voted on by the United States Congress. Because uh, we, we don't have the ability uh, to hold uh, these federal agencies accountable. And they're the ones who, uh, they, there's, there's no downside uh, to them uh, raising your cost, uh, imposing heavier regulations, uh, ignoring the law itself, uh, because you, the voter, uh, can't fire them. Uh, and, and in fact, the way the civil service laws work in Washington, D.C., uh, they're virtually unfireable. Uh, and it, it shows how strayed the federal government has gotten when we have these unaccountable federal bureaucrats running your lives, and people wonder why the economy is not creating more jobs. It's because of the heavy hand of bureaucracy uh, that's put a lid on both aspiration uh, and the ability uh, to create jobs and achieve in the U.S. the way we used to, and this is the best way to peel back uh, the heavy hand of government and return uh, to the uh, greater free enterprise and greater individual individualism the country was intended to have.
0: Yeah, I don't, I don't think that the Founding Fathers ever envisioned that the executive branch would have this ability to create all of these federal agencies and bureaucracies that can create all of these laws and, and even put people in jail under laws that no one ever voted on.
1: Well, and to be quite specific about it, uh, they did debate this uh, during the Constitutional Convention, uh, and they wrote about it in the Federalist Papers, both Alexander Hamilton and James Madison, And what they said is that uh, if there was one branch of government uh, that had unto itself uh, the the powers to create law, to enforce law, uh, and to execute the law, they said that would be the very definition of tyranny itself. And that's exactly what the bureaucratic agencies have become today. They they make the law, uh, they enforce the law, and they adjudicate the law. And so the, the way government works today is the way that Madison and Hamilton said would be the very definition of tyranny.
0: Yeah. Scary stuff. Well, uh, if people want to support the idea of a state convention, what should they do?
1: The, the easiest thing, uh, the most streamlined way they should go about it, they can go to my website at gregabbott.com. That's g-r-e-g-a-b-b-o-t-t dot c-o-m. Okay. Uh, gregabbott.com, and there'll, there'll be a link there that you can click on, and it'll, it'll guide you through it. Uh, in in the, the last page of my book, Broken But i uh... there's also an explanation of what you can do okay. uh... but the in the, the 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 shortcut of it is uh... For, if, if you believe that it's time uh... to return to the first three words of the united states constitution which is we the people uh... as opposed to all these uh... federal bureaucracies running your lives uh... then you need to contact your state representative or state senator not a member of congress as to be a state okay. representative or a state senator, okay. they are the ones who are specifically authorized by the Constitution to call for a convention of states. This is catching fire since I called for it in January. The states of Indiana, Tennessee, and Oklahoma have joined other states, ranging from Florida to Alaska, in calling for a convention of states. Uh, this is something uh, that people are realizing the time has come for to take action to restore the rule of law in the United States of America.
0: Well, that would certainly be an exciting process. Well, before we go, I'm an old Texas boy, so when I'm back home next time, what's your favorite barbecue joint and your favorite Tex-Mex place?
1: Well, Franklin's in Austin, Texas, really has the best barbecue. Of course. Uh, there, there's, uh, be- beginning at about 8 o'clock in the morning, a line formed uh, where they don't uh, begin serving until lunchtime. Uh, people love it so much. Uh, it, it is very,
0: very good barbecue. Uh, on on tex Do you get through the uh, line yeah. faster if you're in a wheelchair?
1: Uh, no. No, there are, okay. <laughs> no, no exceptions. Okay. No, no, no exceptions. How about Tex-Mex? Uh, Tex-Mex, uh, there's so many good ones uh, yeah. in Texas and, and in Austin. Uh, I'll just throw out Gueros, which is uh, very good. But there's, uh, you, you really can't go wrong if you're in Texas if you're in Austin for
0: Tex-Mex. That's for sure. Well, the book is called Broken But Unbowed, The Fight to Fix a Broken America. Governor Greg Abbott, thanks for joining me on the phone here, and uh, you just keep rolling on, man, all right? we Will do it. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks a lot, Governor. Thanks again to Governor Greg Abbott for coming on the show. And if you enjoyed today's episode, I'd encourage you to read his book, Broken But Unbowed. The Fight to Fix a Broken America. I'll include an Amazon link where you can order it in the show notes for this episode and on our website at kickasspolitics.com. Or if you'd prefer to listen to the audio version, you can download that for free through that special trial offer just for our listeners at audibletrial.com backslash kickasspolitics. You can keep up with Governor Abbott at gregabbott.com that's Abbott with two B's and two T's. And you can also follow him on Twitter at at Greg Abbott TX. Again, don't forget to vote for Kick-Ass Politics for Best News and Politics podcast at podcastawards.com. You can vote again every day between now and June 12th. So again, go to podcastawards.com. And vote for Kick Ass Politics in the category of Best News and Politics Podcast. Please subscribe to Kick Ass Politics on iTunes and leave us a review while you're there. And you can also help us reach our fundraising goal for the year and get rewarded by donating to our Patreon campaign at patreon.com backslash kickasspolitics. Follow us on Twitter at KAPolitics or visit Kick-Ass Politics on Facebook. And while you're there, recommend Kick-Ass Politics to your friends on your social media. And as always, I welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions at comments at kickasspolitics.com. But for now, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass Politics. Kick-Ass Politics is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.